I'm Dana Lloyd. Welcome to Soul Sister Conversations, the podcast, where you will be inspired and empowered to connect more deeply with your authentic self as we explore topics of personal development, leadership, and spirituality. Your journey to your most authentic self starts right now. Today, I speak with Sage Dyer, the youngest daughter of Dr. Wayne Dyer, who recently co-authored a book with her sister Serena called The Knowing, 11 Lessons to Understand the Quiet Urges of Your Soul. We talk about what it was like to have Wayne Dyer as a father growing up. She shares some of her favorite and most helpful teachings from him. She also shares a very personal story of healing herself and how she did that. We chat signs and divide guidance. It is such a delightful and warm episode. I hope you enjoy it. Before we dive in, I just wanted to let you know that I have an online women's group called the Soul Prescription Club, and the doors are open right now. If you like to have rich and meaningful discussions around personal discovery, this is a place where you belong. I teach, guide, lead, and coach on a topic each month. It is an interactive space where like-minded members who are on their path to personal discovery join together in conversation. This isn't a lecture. It is like being invited into my home and have a wonderful evening of connection and learning. You have access to a membership forum where there are lots of resources and past sessions you can watch. We even started a book club that you can join inside the group where the focus is on personal development reads. This is the book club I have always wanted to belong to. Go to danaloydleadership.com and click on the Soul Prescription link at the top of the page to find out all the details. Welcome, Sage Dyer, to Soul Sister Conversations. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, thank you for taking some time to share your insight today, and congratulations to both you and your sister on writing a beautiful book. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's um, you know, it was it was nice to see the behind the scenes um, about your experience growing up, Dyer, and I think it's a wonderful way to honor your father and his teachings. And for myself, and for many people around the world, of course, he had such a huge fan base. So it was nice to see um, how growing up, Dyer. I mean, obviously, he had two amazing parents. Um, Can you describe from your experience what it was like um, to have Wayne Dyer as your father? Yeah, you know, I get asked this question a lot, and it's it's one of the more difficult questions to answer because he is the only father I ever had. Um, but I would say, you know, now that I'm older, I'm 31 years old, I have a child of my own and one on the way. I can, and I've seen the way my friends have been raised by their parents, and I can reflect a little more on the on the differences. And one thing I'll say is that. Um, that really stood out to me that was different for my upbringing versus some of my friends was that my parents never put any pressure on any of us to live up to some ideal or to uh, go down a certain path in our life. You know, there was no pressure to go to college if we didn't want to, there was no pressure to date somebody who was a certain way. Um, It was really, as long as we were, living from love, coming from love, following our dreams and, you know, uh, making good choices, they supported us no matter what. And I think that that's unique now that I've gotten older to, to reflect back on that. And as far as my dad, I mean, he was just one of the most fun and, uh, loving and funny people that you could ever imagine. I mean, he had one of the best senses of humor and it was just a constant, um, just constant fun in our household is is what I remember growing up. Yeah, and that's what really came through. And I know your father seemed to be a jokester and a prankster that came through just from watching, you know, watching his talks. And I was fortunate to be able to see him um, in 2015. And but that's what came through in reading the book was the amount of love that both of your parents had. And even from, you know, choosing babysitters, your father would say, you know, unless you're going to do anything other than teach these kids love, don't you basically don't bother showing up. Right. Which that I was, thought that was a funny. When he interviewed our babysitter, he and they decided to hire her. He said, I just have one rule. Teach only love. As long as you're, you know, d- you know, the snack time and the bedtime, that can all be adjusted and it's it's all good. But it's but it's, if you're not setting an example of love, then you're not teaching my children what I want them to learn. So as long as you're just always coming from love, we're always gonna be happy with what you're doing with them. And I think that was 
such a beautiful thing to hear too. You know, all the small things are not as important as a person influencing your kids in a loving, positive way and environment. Absolutely. So why write this book now? Well, so the truth about that is that um, my dad passed away in 2015, going on six years ago. Mm. And we, I personally felt very called to write in the early weeks and months and the first year after he passed away. I was I was in grad school and I had plenty of writing to do for grad school, but I was still finding the time to write, you know, what turned into this book. And at the time I didn't know it was going to be a book. I just felt called to be putting on paper all the things that I was experiencing, um, the signs, the miracles, the lessons. I was really immersed in his work at that time, which is something that I hadn't been before he passed away. And I, um, but after he died, I just felt this like burning desire to read his books and listen to his talks. And so I was doing that and I, and I felt called to write what I was, what I was learning. And it turns out Serena, my sister was sort of doing the same or a similar thing. And she was writing a lot too. And, um, we, after we were talking with, uh, some friend, uh, actually a friend who is an author as well. And she told us if you're both going to write, you should combine it because why put out competing books? You know, once I realized like maybe this could be a book and she was like how powerful it would be to have you come together, especially if you're writing a line. So we started comparing uh, work and notes and, and our writing and all that. And it turns out it did really align. I mean, there was like a very um, beautiful and simple way to make it all fit together. There yeah, were themes written that, seamlessly as well. Yeah. And we didn't even plan that. So there were just themes that had existed between her writing and my writing where it came together really nicely. So we decided to do that. Um, again, this was like five years ago. So we kind of hit a point where we both stopped. Um, we just lost our inspiration to keep doing this book. However, I became um it's not that we, we kind of knew it would always happen, but we just weren't pushing it anymore. Whereas I was like, I had this burning desire for a little while. It fizzled out. I got busy with other things and it stopped. And then about, uh, I don't know, when was this? In, in 2018, I became pregnant with my son and it was sort of unexpected in the way that, I mean, I don't want to say unexpected. I knew what I was doing. I'm an adult. I was married, you know, but it was unexpected because it just happened so fast. And uh, I, the truth is, I was very scared when I found out I was pregnant. I was sort of, I sort of went into like almost not a depression, but just a a fear based mindset, you know, of thinking about all the things and, you know, and I recognize that how grateful I should be about becoming pregnant easily because I know there are so many people who struggle with that, but none of that really mattered. I couldn't get out of this mindset of like thinking about all the never agains and how much my life was going to change and, and how all the freedoms that were going to be taken away from me. I had been traveling a lot. I was 29 years old, living in New York city, um, just really loving my life. And I was once I found out I was pregnant, I realized like, oh my God, the life I live is over. Mm. And that's all I could see. I was very, <laughs> I was having a very narrow tunnel vision at that time. And um, ironically, it was becoming pregnant that pushed me to reach back out to the publishers and we, and, and, and our literary agent that we had hired many years ago, but not followed through with. Because in my mind, I thought once I have this baby, I'm never going to have a career. So I have eight more months until, you know, my career ends. It turns out that's not true at all, but it was that mindset of thinking that that is what pushed me to, and, and to push me to push my sister Serena to say, we have to get this book out because it, we wrote it and it's important and it, I'm proud of what we wrote and I only have eight months left. <laughs> so had I not- And you thought- write about that experience quite eloquently. And I think anybody who as a new mom who, on a, you know, or unexpectedly becomes pregnant can certainly relate that you're enjoying this. Like you said, you're 29 years old in New York City and all of a sudden this is not the direction that you thought you're going. And so you really take us through that, which was um, 
you know, great insight. And how did your father's teachings come into play to help you make that shift um, from this narrow fear-based mindset to um, being more open about it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, for the first like month or so, I I was really stuck in this mindset of, of you know, like I said, so much fear and how my life was ending. And um, I, I started to recognize I was putting on a happy face for other people, especially my husband. He was so excited, and no, not everybody knew that I was uh, feeling that way inside. But uh, I started to just recognize, you know, that I. I'm in this situation, whether I like it or not. And I can choose, you know, my dad always said, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change, I needed to change the way I was looking at this because having a baby is a beautiful thing. And it's something I always wanted. It just felt like it came too soon. And um, I mean, so many things, so many lessons of my dad were really uh, useful to me and served me during this time. I can remember when I was younger, maybe, I don't know, sometime in my 20s, I was driving with my dad in the car and the song, I Hope You Dance by Leanne Womack came on the radio. And um, if you haven't heard that song, it's a, it's a beautiful song and it's full of a lot of just poignant cliche lines of, you know, I hope you uh, never fear those mountains in the distance. And when you get the chance to sit it out or dance, I hope you dance. You know, that's the theme of the song. And it's just mm-hmm. like a beautiful song. If you haven't heard it, I suggest you listen to it. But so my dad said, oh, this is one of my favorite songs when it came on. He said, okay, Sage, we're going to listen to this whole song. And I want you to um, tell me if you can. He said, I agree with every single line in this song except for one. So I want you to listen to it and see if you can find the one line that I dis- that I wouldn't agree with. So I, so we did. And uh, my dad was always playing fun little intellectual games like that. (laughs) And so I, uh, so we listened to it and I I don't think I came up with the line (laughs) that he didn't agree with. However, um, he told me afterwards, he said, the one line that I agree that I disagree with is when she says, you should never settle for the path of least resistance. And he said, because you should always take the path of least resistance. You know, when the universe puts you on a path um, that that is easy and it's flowing, that's like when you know you're on track, when you know you're you're living your your purpose or your purposes, uh, and and vice versa. When you find yourself meeting roadblock after roadblock, red lights, you know, resistance, you should look at that mm-hmm. and. I just started, I remembered that and I thought, this is the path that I'm on. I can resist it all I want, Uh, Mm -hmm. but it's not going to make this experience any better and it's not going to enrich my life. So I could just choose to start embracing this beautiful, beautiful thing that I'm, that's happening to me. Mm. And, um, the, the fact that I'm having my first child, I'm 29 years old. I'm, I'm married. I'm happy. You know, I, I want to have kids. This is a beautiful thing. I can just start to embrace it. And instead of looking at all the never agains, just start to look at all the new opportunities and new ways that my life is going to be enriched, which is exactly what happened. I mean, I love my son. He's the love of my life. I'm so happy that he came into my life when he did, but I just couldn't see it yet. At the time. And yeah, at the time. So it was just a matter of really surrendering to the situation that I was in. And by doing that, I allowed the miracles to start to flow. Mm, and like and that. reflecting back, I can see how it also served to really get this book out here because had that not happened, I don't know that I would have been sending those emails right then. And mm, that's so true. You know. Yeah. The book is called The Knowing, 11 Lessons to Understand the Quiet Urges of Your Soul. What have you come to know about the knowing? What is the knowing? So for me, the knowing is, it can be another word for your intuition. But um, beyond that, it's it's like an inner compass that is always there, um, that you can always tune into. And there are times when it can be louder and there are times when it can be quieter and it's sort of up to you to listen to this 
part of you that knows, you know, I think like we were just talking about resistance. I I think there is a a part of us that um, knows when we're pushing something that shouldn't be pushed, whether it be a relationship or, you know, buying a new house and it's, you just keep getting no's, you know, versus getting yeses, things like that, where we should just sit back and, and look instead of just thinking like, no, 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 I want this now. I want this now. Because sometimes the universe has something far greater in store for you. Mm. And um, yeah, for me, it was just in the book, we talk about different ways to sort of get back in touch with your knowing, because I think it's, it's something we all have, we're all born with and life just sort of gets in the way of, of tuning into it. It gets noisy, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's noisy. I love what you say is that we didn't we didn't discover the knowing, we simply returned to it. The fact that it was always there, but obviously things happen in life, it's noisy, it's we're doing the very physical things which are fun to do and shop and hang out with friends or and and, and that you said, you know, sometimes it's quiet and sometimes it's loud. And it's it's knowing how to discover that. Um what what is one of your favorite ways of and maybe the you know a to listen to that urge, to listen to the knowing, to return to it. Is there a go-to one that you have? Yeah, there definitely is. For me, um, so I grew up with a mom who was a meditator, uh, committed to her meditation more than I've ever known anyone to be. I mean, she had seven children herself. I have, uh, there are eight of us, but my mom personally had seven children. And if anyone had an excuse not to meditate, it was her, you know, <laughs> and but she would just find a way every day to put aside 20 minutes for herself to go in her room and meditate. She had a sign that she would put on her bedroom door that said, mom is meditating for 20 minutes. Do not disturb. And we all knew from a very young age um, not to go knock on her door, her door. You know, anything could wait 20 minutes, basically, unless it was bleeding and things like that. But uh and to, so I watched her be so committed to meditation. She never pushed it on any of us, but she openly encouraged and talked to us about all the benefits that she felt it brought to her life. Before my dad passed away, I definitely had meditated on occasions. Sometimes my dad would get really into um, like a specific meditation and he would be encouraging me to do it with him. So I would do it and I liked it, but I never made it a practice. Um, after he passed away, though, I felt called to meditate because I just felt like my thoughts were so uh, all over the place. You know, they were mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was grieving. I was a mess. And I felt like I couldn't I didn't have control of my thoughts the way that I wanted to. And and so I started to meditate on a daily basis. And what I really found was that by quieting those thoughts, because that's all meditation really is, at least for mm-hmm. me, it's just slowing your thoughts down and, you know, at some point, hopefully eliminating them. But that I think takes years of practice to be able to just really not have thoughts for mm. any amount of time. But if you can slow them down and you can stretch them out, it's like it's that space in between uh, where the magic happens, where the knowing comes in. And I have found that when I am disciplined in a meditation practice, like meaning I do it every day for a few weeks at a time, I feel more tuned in to my knowing, to my dad, to uh, a calmness that isn't always present for me. And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, and it's an important thing when you're, especially when you're raising small kids, but beyond that, when you're, when you're missing somebody uh, that you love, I think you can experience them more. I found that I experienced more signs, more guidance from my dad when I was disciplined in my meditation. Do you think your dad called you to meditation um, or led you to it in some way? Obviously, um, like you said, your thoughts were very erratic and all over the place and that meditation was able to give you that calmness. And you talk about that at different points in the book, being able to be more in touch with him, like your walk on the beach in Hawaii and being able to hear him, um, you know, whether it's actual meditation, sitting down or being quiet. But do you feel like in some way that your dad led you to that? 
You know, when we were, uh, before my dad passed away, the three weeks before, I was in um, Australia with him and New Zealand, and he was on a tour, a, a Hay House tour for his book, um, giving, you know, day-long lectures and or weekend, full weekend lectures, things like that. So I had been with him, immersed in his work uh, for the three weeks before he passed away. We got home 48 hours later, he passed away. And so while we were on that trip, um, he would come into my, my sister Sky was there too. He would come into our room every morning and say, okay, it's time for our meditation. We'd still be half asleep, but he would uh, put on this <laughs> meditation and it was a man's voice. I don't know who he was or it's on YouTube, but I don't know who he was or what his background was, but he just repeated the line. I am not the body. I am not even the mind for like 15 minutes. It just repeated that line. And you were supposed to make that your mantra uh, in your mind. And so, and then there were some ohms at the end. And um, so I was doing that with my dad every morning for three weeks. And, you know, you say something in your head enough times, you start to contemplate it. And I thought about that, you know, after my dad passed away, I took a lot of comfort in contemplating that I am not the body. I am not even the mind. He wasn't his body. He wasn't his mind. He's beyond, there's something else, mm. you know? And, um, it's just, it, it brought me a lot of comfort and, and many different times in my life to just have this idea of, okay, this isn't me when I'm feeling anxious. This isn't me. This is my body reacting to something. This is my mind reacting to something anything like that. And, um, but that's not who I am. And so, yeah, after he passed away, I felt called to do that meditation. But, mm. uh, eventually I learned from my mom who I consider the master meditator that you don't really need anything. When you meditate, you don't need mantras. You just need silence mm. in your mind. Even if you don't have silence where you are, if you can silence your mind to the best of your ability, you're meditating. So I do both. I do that one sometimes and I do meditations where it's just quiet. And I think they both serve me in different ways. Mm, yeah. I, and I think that, you know, meditation became this theme that sort of ran through the book, you know, meditation to get in touch with God, meditation to create miracles, meditation to create peace. And uh, so many people try to do it and find it so difficult. And what is the most powerful part of meditation for you? Do, uh, do you, or when are you called to do it when, when it's kind of chaotic? Yeah, I mean, when it's when it's chaotic or when I have time is the thing. Like sometimes <laughs> you just don't always have the time, especially people like I, you know, I I work, I have a 2-year-old, I have um my husband and I own a restaurant. You know, there's just always something and there's always noise, but what I have found is if you can just find the time, even the 10 minutes, it doesn't have to be 20 minutes. You know, when my son was a baby and I, I was nursing him, I would do it a lot then. I'd say, I'm sitting here. He's nursing. He doesn't need me to look at him. I can close my eyes for 10, 15, 20 minutes and just spread my thoughts out, quiet my mind. And so I, I just try and do it when I can. Um, and I think that everyone, I remember with my mom too, if she couldn't take those 20 minutes in her bedroom because she couldn't always. She would, uh, I remember being in car line with her to pick up my siblings at school and she would tell me I'd be in the back seat. Okay, Sage, you got to be quiet. I'm putting the car in park and I'm going to meditate for 10 minutes because I know I'm not going to be able to later with soccer practice and dinner and whatever. So she just always found the time. And, and as kids, we just had to respect that. I was like, okay, yeah. I have to be quiet now for 20 Very minutes. dedicated. Very yeah. Dedicated. When did you um, truly start paying attention to the knowing? Because I'm sure with your being, I'm assuming with having someone like Wayne Dyer as your father, he's teaching you a lot as you're growing up. You know, may, I don't know if you're a typical teenager, like, yeah, yeah, dad. Or when when did you start to get a sense of your own inner guidance? Yeah, I mean, I think growing up with the parents I did, I was definitely given a leg up um, mm -hmm. on this. But I also, like you said, I was a teenager. I was a child. I was, we were all normal kids who, you know, resisted our parents. And, um, but, you know, it was really, for me, when my dad passed away, um, his work only then started to apply to me for the first time in a big way, because prior to that, 
I had never lost anybody that I was very close to. And I had had a pretty smooth sailing life that I didn't feel challenged to, uh, I, I didn't question anything because nothing had happened for me to question, you know? So when my dad passed away, I felt like I was sort of presented with like a crossroads. I mean, cause growing up, I would say I was both a believer in what my dad and mom taught and talked about, but I was also a little bit skeptical and not, not in a bad way, just in a way that was like, you know, I remember my dad telling this story, telling me in the morning that his mom appeared to him in the middle of the night. His mom had recently passed away. He, she appeared to him at his, uh, the foot of his bed in the middle of the night. And in the morning, I was like, but did she really like, how do you know you weren't dreaming? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Things like that. I just was skeptical mm-hmm. because it, it didn't apply to me. And, um, and when he passed away, I was so grief stricken and so devastated. And I found myself having constant thoughts of um, fear-based thoughts and grief-based thoughts, which are totally normal and everybody has them and and they're healthy. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be sad or feel your feelings, but there came a point for me where I was just, I kept having these thoughts of like, you know, what if I had done this? What if I had been there when my dad, you know, he had a heart attack and he was by himself. And so what if I had been there, you know, just thoughts that really aren't taking you anywhere positive. And um, so I, I recognized that I was doing that and I would, I would go down this hole of really just thoughts that brought me down. And, uh, and then I would have this thought pop in my head of just call dad, like an instinct, just call Mm -hmm. him. He'll make this better. And then it was this recognition of you'll never do that again. And it's so hard to fathom that, you know, you go your whole life having somebody, a phone call away, you know, a drive away, whatever it is, or living in the same house as them. And then they're just gone. And Mm. it's, it's just our brains just can't comprehend it, you know? So that's how I felt anyway. And I, um, so I would have this thought of call dad and then I would have to say to myself, okay, you're never going to do that again. Mm. And there came a point when I, I remember I was in the shower and I, that happened where I had this thought of, I was in a, a dark place having thoughts of all the never agains and all the should haves and could haves. And I, uh, had the thought of call dad and then recognizing that I wouldn't. And I stopped myself and I said, okay, Sage, you can't keep going down. This is a, this is a spiral. You can't just mm. keep going. It's a circle. It's a cycle. You've got to, uh, you know, you've got to change this around or you're going to just stay stuck. And I, so I said to myself, okay, you can't call dad, but you have a lifetime of knowing him and learning from him and being immersed in his work, his love, all of that. What would Mm. he say to you now? If you could call him, you know what he would say to you. What would he say? And I felt like I heard my dad, um, this was just a few weeks after he passed away. So I felt like I heard his voice in my mind say, Sage, you can either make this the worst thing that's ever happened to you. You can go on having all these thoughts of the never agains and the, you know, the should haves, and you can stay stuck in this fear-based mindset, or you can start to change your thoughts process, change your thought process around this and see this as an opportunity to get to know me from the other side, to get to know what I know to be true, which is that the soul, you know, does not die. We have these bodies that um, my dad always said, you know, we come here with a round trip ticket Mm -hmm. and we often uh, always actually celebrate the first leg of that ticket, the birth. I mean, we continue to celebrate our birthdays, for our whole lives, because it's such a uh, amazing, miraculous event to mm. a new life. Um, but then we start to fear the the return trip, the return to home. He always called it a return to home. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the life here is the classroom, but when you when you leave life here, you return to your home, and you can. Uh, so, so 
and then anyway, so yeah, so we, sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second. I'm nine months pregnant. So excuse my out of breathness <laughs> You're and, my, and my brain fog, but, um, but yeah, that, and that we fear this return home and, and, but really what it is, is a return to God and, uh, something to be excited about, at least for my dad and my mom who is alive and well today, but she always talks about how she's excited for the next adventure. And mm. so I felt like I was getting these insights while I was in the shower and they were kind of, to me, they felt out of nowhere because I didn't feel like I was in a state to be having these sort of profound thoughts, you know, but I just started to remember some of the things he said and that basically what he was saying to me is you have a choice and you can view it the way you've been viewing it, or you can start to view it as a miracle, as an opportunity to grow an opportunity to learn, help other people and, um, and to get to know him from the other side. And so, Mm -hmm. and I was reminded also, I remembered this story that he used to tell about, um, it was a, a man whose son was off at war and the man got a, a knock on the door one morning and it was somebody there to tell him that his son had died in battle. And um, that night he went out into the town and he went dancing and he was seen by some neighbors who knew what had, what had happened to uh, his son and what he had just found out that morning. And so a woman went up to him and said, I don't understand. How could you be out here dancing when you've just learned that your son passed away? And he said, sooner or later, I'm going to have to move on from this or it's going to kill me. And um, I'm just choosing sooner. Mm. And I remembered that story at that time. And I thought like, you know, I can choose sooner. I can choose now. And that doesn't mean I'm not saying that you shouldn't grieve or that grieving isn't normal and important to feel all those feelings. But it just for me was permission to also choose happiness and joy during this time that was really hard prior to that to feel happiness and joy. Mm. And it was um, validation also for me because my semester was starting. I was in grad school and my semester was starting a few days later and I thought, like I shouldn't, I should take the semester off because, you know, what's everyone going to think of me if I don't and things like that. Right. Even though I also was thinking, but what am I going to do with myself for a whole semester if I don't, you know, I don't, that was like my focus at that time. And so I, in that moment, that gave me sort of what I needed to hear to choose to go to school that semester. And it was the right choice for me. And I'm not saying that would be the right choice for everybody, but it was the right choice for me. And, and it was from that, that moment, that shower, that these Mm. sort of miracles and knowings started to take place in my life. Um, And I started to feel really connected to my dad. Whereas prior to that, I wasn't even sure that I could connect with my dad. I wasn't, wasn't sold on that idea. I wasn't saying it wasn't possible, but I wasn't totally feeling it. it. Yeah, I wasn't sure. And, I felt and surrender like, was a big part of that. It feels like you, you, when you release that fear, you've talked about that a few times. So once you release that, you then could, I guess, hear him in a way. Yeah. I mean, surrendering to me is like saying yes to the universe. Um, it's like, it makes the way for allowing your desires to flow to you, you know, effortlessly. And because I think you hear surrender and you think like, okay, I guess I just I'm giving up, I'm surrendering. But no, to me, surrendering is like saying yes to the universe, saying mm-hmm. because what what would be res- what am I resisting anyway? My dad was gone. There was nothing I could do to bring him back, and so I could either continue to choose thoughts that made me scared, nervous, sad, or I could start to choose thoughts that brought me closer to him, closer to a, a sense of peace, which is really what you're wanting in those days. It's like, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, when you lose somebody, you're just in a, you're in turmoil. There is no peace. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was so, my world was rocked and you just are craving this sense of peace. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it can be available to you at least in do- small doses at the beginning, but it's, it's a mindset and it's a surrender. Mm-hmm. 
it is pretty powerful when you get in touch with your knowing. And I found it, uh, the story, and I've heard your dad talk about the story before, and you put it in the book uh, when you were younger and you had, um, I guess there were warts or bumps on your face and that you healed yourself of them. And in some way, I, I guess you knew the knowing then. Um, yeah. To get back. Is that what you'd think? What would you say? Totally. I think that as kids, we actually probably are far more tuned into our knowing and our intuition than we are as adults. I, yeah, I can share that story if you'd like. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So when I was five years old, I developed a rash of bumps on my face. And um, my parents were pretty laid back with doctors and they definitely believed in letting the body heal itself. But after a few weeks or maybe a month, the rash wasn't going away and they took me to a doctor and the doctor diagnosed it as flat warts. And he said that flat warts were common in kids and they were uh, nothing to worry about and that they would go away on their own within a couple months. It's a virus and that they would go away. And so uh, we left and it was no big deal. And, uh, but they didn't go away <laughs> about a year later, they were still on my face. And my parents, you know, they were looking things up and talking to people, but they didn't want to, you know, jump. The doctor had assured them that they weren't harming me. So we let this go on for a while. And but after like a year, uh, my parents took me back to the doctor and said, look, she still has these flat warts. What's what's going on? Are you sure they're flat warts? Whatever. So the doctor said they're definitely flat warts. Um, but there are some rare cases where people don't recover on their own from them and need to have treatment. And, uh, he, he told me that, or he told my parents and me, I was probably six years old at this point that they needed to treat them and that th there were two options. We could either burn them off, like freeze dry them off what they do to warts. And these were on my face. So <laughs> that didn't yeah. sound very appealing to a six year old and, or to anyone. And, or he said, we can, um, you can take an oral medication, but he said it may or may not work. and it can cause your skin to peel. It had all these side effects. You have to stay out of the sun, on and on. And um, I didn't really want to do that either. So I said to my parents, you know, I, I just want, let's just keep waiting. I think they're going to go away on their own. And my parents listened to me. They said, okay, I mean, they're not doing you any harm. And that's the way my parents were growing up. They, they definitely honored our wishes, especially when it came to our bodies. And so we left and another year and a half goes by and these still are not gone. They really didn't bother me. I was five, six, seven. You're not really looking in the mirror when you're those ages. I just remember that my skin didn't feel smooth. Um, and by the way, I called, because <laughs> I wrote a children's book about this story and it's called Goodbye Bumps. I called them my bumps because the word wart did not sit well with uh, <laughs> as a child. <laughs> as a child, yes, I, I made my parents promise they wouldn't tell anybody that they were warts, so we all called them my bumps. But um, so yeah, another year and a half goes by, and they're not gone, and they've spread and become worse. And we were out in Hawaii, uh, which is where we spent our summers as a family, and uh, my skin would tan, but the the warts wouldn't. So they became even more pronounced. And um, so my parents decided to take me to a dermatologist out there who was also a friend of my dad's. And we went to his office. And I remember he, I'm um, like seven and a half, almost eight at this point, And he said, um, this is kind of the same thing the other doctor said. He, he said, you've had these for too long. Your immune system's not kicking in. You're not able to fight them. We have to treat them. And he outlined the same two options, burning them off or taking a medicine. And so I looked at my parents and I said, I still don't want to do either of those. I don't even care about these <laughs> flat warts. I don't care if they stay. Um, so my parents went out into the hallway with the doctor and, and said whatever they said. And they came back in to me and they said, um, okay, we think you have a third option. And I said, okay, great. And they said, we think you can heal yourself of these bumps by talking to them. And I said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> makes sounds, sense. Like, yeah, it's like, makes sense. Sounds like the best option to me. No pain, no side effects. Let's go. So uh, I took that very literally as a, a child. And I went home. And that night when I got into bed, I talked to my bumps in my head for about five minutes. And then I went to sleep. And I forgot about it in the morning. 
and I did that for three nights, um, just talking to them before I went to bed for five minutes or so, and then going what on. What did you say day. to these bumps? So I'll tell you that at the end, <laughs> because, uh, yeah. But so then on the fourth night, I got in bed to talk to my bumps and I reached up and I touched my face and I had completely smooth skin. I couldn't find a trace of one. So I jumped out of my bed and I ran into my parents' bedroom and I was saying, they're gone, they're gone, they're gone. And they're going, what, what's gone? What are you talking about? I said, my bumps, they're gone. And my dad pulled me close and, um, looked at my face and he said, Oh my God, they're gone. I don't see a single one. And my mom putting her glasses on and they're both looking at my face and they couldn't believe they were truly gone after almost three years of having these on my face, they were gone in, in four nights. And so my dad immediately said what you just said, which is, what did you say to them? <laughs> and I told him that it was a secret and that I couldn't tell him. And, um, he started to tickle me and tell me, you better tell me he, I wouldn't tell him. He said, you know, I think I was enjoying the, the attention. So I just kept not telling him. He started to bribe me. I'll give you $20. I'll take you to get ice cream. You know, what do I have to do to get you to tell me what you said? And I wouldn't tell him. And I didn't tell him for years. And, um, he, he included it in one of his books, uh, the story, but he had to end it with, she still hasn't told me what she said to these bumps. And I, uh, about 10 years later, when I was like 18 years old, I, we were talking about it again. And I said, I don't know why I haven't told you all these years what I said to my bumps. I can tell you. I, I don't, I'm not even sure why I kept it a secret. He said, finally. So I, I told them that what I said to them was that I basically just told them that I loved them. I loved them very much, but that they, that we couldn't be together anymore, that they had to leave. Um, I thanked them for coming. I asked them to leave. I, I surrounded them in love. I pictured having clear skin and I pictured them falling off my face and yeah. And, and that was it. It was simple. And my dad was really moved in that moment. I mean, I don't think I, even at 18, I realized that, that there was something profound to that. And he was mo- he was so moved that he decided to call that dermatologist because um, they were still friends and he was still his dermatologist. So he called him right then and there and said, she finally told me what she said to these bumps. <laughs> You're not going to believe it. And so he told the dermatologist and um, the dermatologist actually started to cry on the phone. And he said, I'm just so emotionally moved by that because I would have imagined that she would have uh, threatened them and waged war at them and said, if you don't leave, I'm burning you off. And, but she did it with love and they responded so quickly. And, um, you know, me and my dad started to realize this was actually a really incredible healing that took place, you know, when I was younger and didn't even realize what I was doing. So we did turn it into the children's book, but the reason that when I reflect back now on it, I think it worked because Number one, I had no doubt that it would because my parents told me that it would. And at seven, eight years old, that was enough of a reason to just know that it would. You know, I knew that I could talk to them and that they would go away. And I didn't plant the seed in my head that I probably would now as an adult or it would be harder not to of, you know, well, if it doesn't work within a week, I'll go back and I'll do the medicine and this is kind of weird, but you know, I'll give it a try. <laughs> something like that. Something we would probably say now, yeah, uh, or I would at least. And so, and the other reason I think it worked is because I approached it with love. And I think that, um, you know, if I really believe in what my dad taught, it's we all come mm-hmm. from love and we all return to love and every living thing does. And even a virus is a living thing. I mean, it's a, it's an organism. It's a live virus and it's at its source and its core it's love as well and i think that mm-hmm. you know coming from love versus i think often in medicine western medicine we come at um medical treatments with uh this idea of like i'm going to attack the right. cancer i'm going to battle this i'm going to you know i'm going to beat it and just as a child my instinct was to come at it with love and i i think my body responded in a different way because of that. 
I think it's such a powerful story and and you're exactly right. I think it's as a child, there's no doubt in approaching it with love. If we shift it to that versus like you say, what we do, we normally attack or wage war. There's That's two different things. It's a completely different outcome. So right. I think that's very poignant. And there's just so many things like that in the book too, uh, you know, different different stories that relate to that. And I can only imagine living in a home of love, um, how that just seeped in. That was your approach to love them versus I'm going to burn you off if you don't leave. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, yeah, it, it it did seep in a little bit there, I think, yeah. my upbringing, whether I realized it or not, you know. Absolutely. What, what do you think your father most prepared you for in life, looking back now? You know, that's hard to say because I think that in life, um, you know, I used to, think when I was younger that in life, you know, you have to find your purpose. And I don't know, I got that idea from him or from society or whatever it was. And I've just started to realize that I don't like that idea very much of finding my one purpose, because I think that in life, there are, you're going to have so many purposes even in one single day, you can serve many purposes and they can all be important and they can all serve your highest self. Like for me, um, sitting here and doing this podcast is important to me and it's part of my purpose. It's getting this book out there that I, that I wrote and that I'm proud of. And that's a big purpose for me right now. But when we finish and I go out and I take my son to the park, that's also a big part of my purpose. And I'm just as proud and happy with that purpose in my life as I am with this one. And in three weeks when I'm giving birth or less, <laughs> that will be my purpose on that, on that day. And I'm bringing a new life and I, I can't, I don't even, I am not, can't even imagine what that's going to be like having two, but you know, I just, um, I think that we can wear so many hats in our life and, and this is where I am right now. And 10 years from now, my, my purpose is will look different and that they're all important. And I just, I think that, um, that having him as my dad helped me to just be open to these sort of, you know, insights that bring me comfort to where I am in my life. Cause like I said, I wasn't excited about being a mom, even though it turns mm. out it's something that I love, but having been raised by the parents that I was just gave me that extra push to be open to being happy about being a mother. And it turns out that I am. And yeah, I don't know. I think that Mm. just having an openness is um, so important in life. It's like uh, nothing is impossible. Just Mm. being open to that idea. My dad used to say, even the word says I'm possible. Right. You know, there's no such thing as impossible. So yeah, I love that being open. And it almost feels like, uh, like a big part of your father's purpose, you know, was to help other people be open to possibility. You know, he'd always say, you, you quote the, you know, all things are possible, you know, and he would say, that means you can't leave anything out. Right. And, and there was some way in that he would talk about signs and this divinity in the, in the other side of life that somehow gave us permission um, that woo woo is okay. <laughs> and, right. you know, if people love talking about signs and you know, your book is loaded with them from everything from your father, you recognize after he passed that he felt like he actually knew that he was going to die. Um, not yeah. consciously, but his highest self, that knowing, um, to actual just signs that you've all received afterwards from going to a medium to um, taking walks on the beach, just the different ways you hear. And even the the divine guidance in numbers, one of the things that made me laugh, uh, um, because I also look at numbers, and he wanted to know when any of you ever saw the numbers 1111. And I, I know a yeah. lot of people look for that number. And he wanted to see when you were all in alignment. He wanted people to know at any point in the day, text me or send me a message when <laughs> Um, exactly. Did you growing up with that? Did did you take it seriously? Do you think, oh, that's dad just being goofy, or how did you see all the things that he saw in life, the woo woo side of life? Yeah. Did you take it seriously? <laughs> I like. I think it's like I said before. I took it seriously, 
but I also was skeptical. You know, (laughs) I was more on the lines of like, well, this could just be a coincidence, which my dad always said is a completely misnomer because (laughs) the word coincidence is derived from the word coincide, which means two, it's a mathematical term that means two angles that fit together perfectly. So we've taken this word that means two things that happen perfectly in alignment and we've taken it to mean it's some sort of accident. But, um, but in reality, a coincidence is, uh, is an alignment and a moment of synchronicity and alignment and something to be excited about. But I, I the eleven eleven thing, um, that there was a, the summer before he passed away, he became really into seeing the clock at eleven eleven, and he wanted to see it every day. Like you said, and if we saw it, we were supposed to text him. So his phone would light up at that time. <laughs> and what it taught me is because I started to see the clock almost at least once a day, every day at 11, 11. And what it taught me is what you put your attention on expands and grows. And, mm. you know, so I just, that those kinds of teachings seeped in for me, whether he intended them to or not, um, because of him saying, look at the clock when it's 11, 11. And I started to see it every day. I'm thinking like, wow, this is crazy. But is it my internal <laughs> clock or am I just being, you know, I'm, I'm creating what I'm looking for. What, what we, and that's what he always said. Well, you put your attention on expands and grows. So put your attention on the things that you want in life, not on the things that you don't want. Mm. And you'll, you'll get more of what you want in your life. It makes sense. Yeah, I know your father had so many teachings, and you refer to some, you know, so many of them. Um, are there any that your favorites? I know there's been you, you mentioned yeah. ones that were helpful to you, but is there one that you just go to go back to? You probably maybe preach to friends, or you help, you know, to help other people shift their experience. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, just to keep it in theme with what we've been talking about uh, during this this whole hour, is. The, You've heard the line from the Tao Te Ching, there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. We've all probably heard that. Um, I heard it growing up a million times. And in not just from my father, it's on TV shows, it's on mugs. I mean, it's a very common line. It never resonated with me until one day um, I was, I heard it and it was read out loud. And I, it was shortly after I had given birth to my son and was feeling so happy, even though I thought that I wasn't going to be. And, um, and it resonated with me for the first time, you know, there is no way to happiness for me, staying single without children and living in New York and traveling all that, that wasn't the way to happiness. And being a mother isn't the way to happiness. I bring the happiness you know, I bring the happiness to every situation that I'm in. And just remembering that it's a choice. Um, that, you know, being in a state of joy feels good. And I think it makes you, uh, you know, our dad, his uh, his voicemail on his phone said, uh, this is Wayne Dyer that you've reached and I want to feel good. And if your message is designed to do anything else, you've reached the wrong number. And because yeah, feeling good is feeling God. I mean, that was what he, what I I think one of the biggest takeaways for me was, is that life is meant to be enjoyed and Mm. um, it's meant to be happy. My dad always used to say to me, you know, I think you're going to do my work one day, but right now you're still too into, you'd rather be right than be kind. (laughs) And you need to get to a place where you'd rather be kind than be right. And he would say that to me all the time. And I would just be like, oh, Okay. But it it hit me, like you know, as I've gotten older, it hit me what that meant, you know, to just be kind brings you more peace and more joy in that moment than to try and be, mm-hmm. prove somebody else that you're right sure. and they're wrong when reality is nobody really knows anyway. So choose <laughs> thoughts True. and actions that are peaceful and that bring you joy and happiness. And yeah, so it's just, I, I say that to myself all the time. There is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. You bring the happiness. So True. In the in the time since your dad has been gone, have you assigned any meaning or made sense of your father's early departure? I know you you say in the book that you know when when you pass on, all of this will become clear. You'll know the reason. Have you reflected on that since, in terms of of why he might have departed early, what has created? You know, I don't know why he had to depart at the day and the time that he did. 
aside from the fact that that it I mean the date that he chose to leave August 30th mm-hmm. in the book we talk about how much meaning that date uh, has come to have for us yes. but I don't know why it had to be August 30th of 2015 you yeah. know um but I do know that uh for me it it served to to push my life into a direction that it wasn't currently going at that time. Mm. And I was able to reflect back and just see that it was, it was perfect timing in the sense that um, like you just alluded to a minute ago, there was a lot of signs that took place before he passed away that he was preparing to leave. And um, I didn't, you know, at the time, I, I don't know whether I realized it or not, but reflecting back, I mean, it's so obvious that he was, preparing his soul and his family and everyone for him to be leaving, which makes me know that it was on time, that all mm-hmm. deaths are on time, whether, you know, and it's easier to say that when your father was 75 and passes away and lived a, a full, beautiful, loving life. It's not always easy like that. In fact, sometimes it's infinitely harder when it's not in the natural order of things. Um, so I acknowledge that wholeheartedly, but I still do believe that deaths are on time, just like births are on time. Mm, Perfect order. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, um, what is the message that you hope people walk away with uh, or feeling when they read this book? What was your intent? Our intent was to just, yeah, I mean, I think my intent would be to help somebody tap into that part of themselves that does have answers, you know, that, Mm. that does have the ability to trust and surrender and allow and flow. And I hope that, you know, the book serves to help people just tune into that a little bit more. Cause again, it's not, it's not a snap of the fingers and you're a changed person. It's not for me. I'm certainly a human and get caught up in all the emotions and um, certainly lose touch with my knowing at times, but it's just, it's a practice and it's an ability to live your life from a different perspective and tuned in in a different way as much as you can. And that's what I hope yeah. the book serves for yeah. other people. And I can feel that when I read it. I just have a last couple of uh, questions for you, some rapid fire questions. Sure. Um, what have you come to learn about the power of being you? Um. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm now I'm 31 and I think that for the first time in my I mean not the first time because I've always loved myself, but um just I think as you get older you're able to do that more and just be authentically yourself and be happy with that and not and start to care a little bit less what other people think and I'm my dad was somebody who really did not care what other people thought about him I mean he would show up to a wedding in shorts and he just (laughs) you know whether you think that's rude or not I don't know but he just it, it was something that he just didn't care about and not in a not in a rude way it's just he just wasn't tuned into that it wasn't important to him um what other people were thinking or saying about him he brought an energy with him that was so beautiful. It didn't matter what he wore, you know? Mm, And yes. So I I feel like I'm getting, I'm not quite like that, but (laughs) getting just more in tune with that sort of um, part of myself or it doesn't matter what other people think. And Mm. uh, what other people think of me is none of my business. It's, it's, if I'm happy with myself and focusing on that. Yeah. I like that. Uh, What has become abundantly clear to you? What's abundantly clear to me is that um, there is more to life than we, uh, and more to this universe than we could ever know, uh, more than meets the eye. And and we're limited by these bodies and our ability to know that because we only can perceive with our five senses. And so just uh, trusting that there is so much more. I mean, my dad used to start his talks, or at least when we were in Australia on that trip, he started his talks with just a video that went through galaxies, just like a, of stars, you know, and um, because it just makes you realize like, wow, my, the the traffic ticket, ticket I got this morning <laughs> is so meaningless when you think about how much is out there 
Mm. And it's just that has become more abundant in my life. Thoughts like that. This is this is minor. This is a moment. Mm. And lastly, what does the world need most? Um, I know it's cliche, but I think the world <laughs> needs more love yeah. and more uh, compassion. You know, it depends what aspect of the world we're talking about. But I think about um, the what's going on in the Middle East right now and things like that. And I just think just compassion that we're all humans. We're all just trying our best. There's no need to, you know, more being kind rather than right. Mm. Uh, if everyone okay. could meditate on that for for, you know, a little while each day that we might actually change the world. Mm, so true. Um, I'll end this conversation with uh, a quote from that you had at the beginning of your book um, from your dad's book called The Power of Intention, which I loved. It says, somewhere buried deep within each of us is a call to purpose. It's not always rational, not always clearly delineated, and sometimes even seemingly absurd but the knowing is there. There's a silent something within that intends you to express yourself, that something is your soul telling you to listen and connect your love, a kindness, and receptivity. Thank you, Sage, for pointing us back to our knowing today so that we can do just that, listen and connect to love and kindness and receptivity. I appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy yeah. we had this opportunity to, to have this conversation. It was great. Mm, thank you. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please go to iTunes to rate and review this podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation, connect with Soul Sister Conversations on the Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dana Lloyd Leadership, on Twitter at Coach Dana underscore Lloyd, and of course on LinkedIn. See you next week.